if you want to, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles over to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 14. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. We're going to do a little bit of review first. You guys know that during the course of this series, I've told you guys that I feel it necessary to review and review and review and review. And the reason that I want to do that is because people like to say practice makes perfect. Not necessarily, but practice does make permanent. It does make permanent. You do something over and over and over again. It sinks into your heart and your mind. And the Lord has impressed upon me to, as we move forward in 2024 and maybe throughout the course of this ministry, to really focus on using tools in preaching that help you guys retain what's being preached, what's being taught. And one of those is repetition, but another of those is alliteration. And everybody makes fun of a preacher saying, it doesn't matter what five points you got, you can make them start with the same letter. Some way or another, you know, you're going to make it start with the same letter. You're either going to make an acronym or you're going to make an alliteration. And we joke about those things, but we don't realize how effective they are. I was thinking the other day and I remembered a sermon that I heard preached over a decade ago on God grounding you, God growing you, God guarding you, God guiding you, God giving himself to you, and God glorifying himself in you. And I still remember every single point of that sermon like it was yesterday because of the alliteration. And even if you forget a point, you're like, well, I've got five out of the six, but they all start with G, so you can eventually find that other point. It helps. And I get tired sometimes of us focusing so much on being eloquent or sounding pretty or unfolding some new revelation when really and truthfully it would be a lot more advantageous if we would break down and we would understand that if we can communicate in such a way that it changes lives and that people can minister the gospel themselves have it ministered to them and then apply that in their own life and then be able to administer that to others that's what's powerful not just an eloquent sermon that everybody forgets three hours later but something that people retain in their knowledge that they can use and change their life amen all right well you don't have to say amen i'll say amen for you you know i'm not pre i'm not preaching to um moms here so i expect you know we we've been through this you say amen you say amen hallelujah you know talk back talk back look i don't have these mics on the live stream isn't going to hear you unless you're loud enough to come through this mic so don't worry about the internet audience or people hearing you just say amen say hallelujah point at yourself jump up and down wave your hands it's okay we're pentecostals last time i checked i think that we're still a charismatic church hallelujah there you go like you can move you don't have to be frozen we're not the frozen chosen okay we're let, let some light in let some warmth in move don't let those muscles <laughs> don't let those muscles get atrophied or you know <laughs> let's let's go let's go let's let's go all right so hebrews 1 9 we're in the series on the oil of gladness telling you guys practical steps on how to walk in the joy of the lord practical steps on how to walk in the joy of the Lord because what is missing in the church peace and joy people in church are in turmoil and they're miserable people in church are in turmoil and they're miserable we are missing the joy of the Lord in church and there's a plethora of reasons and so what I wanted to do is I wanted to share my experience about God breaking the spirit of depression off of me and baptizing me with the oil of gladness or baptizing me in joy anointing me with the oil of gladness those two phrases mean the same thing and initiating me into a life of joy does that mean I don't have troubles no does that mean that I don't get angry no ask my kids I still get angry at times does that mean that I don't have moments of sadness no what that means is that my new default has become joy my new strength and my foundation has become joy in the Lord not sadness not depression not anger not frustration not resentment not contempt not disgust not pain not agony my new foundation has become joy and because my foundation is joy no matter what feeling I have I can hop 
skip, and jump back to joy. The problem that Christians face is that our foundation is not joy, and so then we get upset or sad, and we stay in sadness. We don't know how to return to joy. We get mad, we stay in anger, and we don't know how to return to joy. We get fearful, we stay in fear and anxiety, and we don't know how to return to joy. The baptism of joy or the anointing with the oil of gladness is about changing your foundation and living a life in the joy of the Lord. And we know that God wants us to be joyful. I've shared these scriptures with you. Ask whatsoever you will in my name, believing you shall receive that your joy may be made full. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I mean, it goes on and on and on about God wanting you to have joy in your life. God does not want you to mourn or lament your Christianity. Nobody wants to have somebody mourn and lament their relationship with them. I mean, I've shared this example. If I mourned and lamented and was miserable about my relationship with my wife, our relationship would not be prosperous. It would not be good. In fact, it would be pretty awful. You know, I walk up to her, here, social convention says I have to give you flowers for Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. That would be a horrible plan. That would not end well for me. You guys would be looking for a new pastor. <laughs> but if I rejoice in that and I put intentionality behind that and I desire that relationship, then it brings about a whole new level of intimacy. We just went through the marriage conference, and that's what the main theme was. It doesn't matter what point they were talking about, what issue they were addressing, the main theme was about intentionality. Intentionally pursuing your marriage, intentionally learning about your spouse, intentionally striving for that. And a lot of times in Christianity, we just leave everything to chance. You're just like, well, I got saved. I'm just going to leave the rest to chance. No, this is about intentionally pursuing the joy of the Lord. Amen? All right. So our scripture was, You have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. That's the scripture for the whole series. And just a quick recap, I have given you guys points each week. We have went through four weeks in this series, and each week I have given you one word that the whole week is summarized by. The first week was your identity. And these are necessary. These are practical things that you can take and you can apply to your life that day. I just started reading a book on the recommendation of my mentor called The Seven Pillars of Health. It's based off of Proverbs where he says this, Wisdom has built it her house and established it upon seven pillars. And he establishes the seven pillars of health. And it's a long book. But the way that he writes the book is he does this thing where each day has a teaching. And then it has a reflection. And then it has like an application point. Something you can take small that you can take that day and put into practice in your life. And that's what I'm trying to do with this series. Is I'm telling you practical things so that you can orchestrate your life around it. And put it into practice as you leave. Not, hey, you've got to work all the way through the series because we're going to pray for everybody to have joy when the series is complete. That's great. But what do you do in the seven weeks in the meantime? I want you guys to walk away with a point each week knowing, hey, I can take this, I can apply it to my life and move forward. And next week when I'll get another point and I'll take that and apply it to my life. And the first point was identity. Knowing who you are in the Lord. We struggle with this in church. And I told you guys last week, and I reiterated this week, if I'm here for 50 years and you never hear another word that I say, I want you to understand your identity. That you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus by faith. You don't work to become righteous, and you don't work to stay righteous. We have taught that in church for years. We have taught... A works-based salvation. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. You can't do this. You can't do that. And what has happened is people have entered into a state of spiritual anxiety and it has become a barrier for them entering into joy. I want you to understand that you become righteous in God by believing that Jesus is the Christ. By believing that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and confessing with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you are saved. And when you are saved, that is the same thing as being justified or being pronounced righteous in God's sight. That is your identity. You are righteous. You don't get that by works and you don't keep that by works. 
Because a lot of people will preach justification by faith and they'll preach it well. You believe and you're saved. Come up to the altar, say a prayer, you're saved, hallelujah. But then they immediately impose this big burden or yoke of works upon you and say you've got to do this and you can't do that. And if you go to that movie, you've lost your salvation. You need to come up to the altar and get it again. If you do that or you say that word, you need to come up to the altar and get your salvation back because you lost it. That is garbage. That is not Bible. That is not Bible. Paul says this. He says, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? No. The whole point is, no. You are kept righteous by your faith. You become righteous by faith and you are kept righteous by faith. That's identity in Christ. You are righteous. I cannot say that enough. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are righteous. God is not mad at you. We can say this over and over again. People talk about God being angry. God's mad at you. He wants to strike you. No, He doesn't. He put all that sin on the tree, and if it's on the tree, then it can't be on me, right? (laughs) I mean, that's really silly, but hey, it rhymes. If it's on the tree, it isn't on me. If it's on the tree, it isn't on me. If God put my sin on Christ Jesus, and Christ Jesus took it to the cross and died for it, then it would be unjust of God to then punish me or be angry at me for that sin that He paid for on that tree. God is not double-minded. He doesn't have two thoughts about any one thing. He has paid for your sins, past, present, and future, upon that cross. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are righteous. Now you're probably asking yourself, because the common response is, well, are you giving everybody a license to sin? And the answer is no, people sin with or without a license. Like, they don't care. It's not like I need to go get your permission to sin. No, you don't. You, people just sin. The difference is, is that if I tell you to live your life and to do this, do this, do this, and don't do this, this, or this, what are you going to do? You're going to do the don'ts and not do the do's. <laughs> you are. I tell my kid, I want you to play quietly in your room for the next hour so I can have this phone call. I guarantee you in the next five minutes, they are going to have some dire emergency that is going to make them vacate that room and come yelling through the house to try and find me to solve their problem. In fact, they'll probably run past their mom to come get me because I'm the one on the phone. (laughs) And she will say the same thing. I'm outside. The kids are outside. They have an emergency, but she's inside on the phone. They run past me to run inside to find her because she's the one that can't be disturbed. We have this tendency to want to do the things we're not supposed to do and not do the things that we're supposed to do. That's what Paul cries out in Romans 7. We have created this issue in the church where we have focused on the imperatives or what to do and not to do so much that we have missed the majority of the Bible, which is the indicatives of what God has done for us already. The Bible is more about what God is doing and what God has done than it is about what you're supposed to do and what you need to do. It is more about God than it is about you. You could call it the autobiography of God because that's exactly what it is. It's more about what He has done than what you need to do. But because we have created this system of rules, we have set ourselves up for failure and spiritual anxiety. Know that you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus by faith. That was identity. Number two was communication. And I won't spend a long time on this, but communication. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth. Speak that which is not as though it already was. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. The list goes on and on and on. Scripture is chocked full of things that basically say this. Watch what you say. James says, out of the same mouth proceedeth forth blessing and cursing. For with the same mouth we bless God, even the Father, and with the same mouth we curse men which are made after the similitude of God. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Can a vine bear olive berries? Or can a vine bear figs? No, they can't. The same fountain can't produce bitter water and sweet. The same fountain can't produce salt water and fresh. So the mouth should not be producing two opposite ends of the spectrum. If your heart is made righteous, your speech should be righteous. Watch what you say. Because what we have done is we curse people. And the word curse isn't like a witch over the pot, you know, casting a spell. It's just a bad word. You speak death over people. 
And I told you guys when we went through this, if you're going to speak death and life, speak His death and His life. Speak the cross of Christ. When you see somebody acting like the old man that was crucified, the old man which is dead, you see them acting like that, say, no, that's not who they are. They are a new man in Christ Jesus, which is made after righteousness and true holiness. That is them acting out of character. That is not their identity. Quit saying, they'll never change. They'll never grow out of that. Quit saying, I'll never make enough money. I'm always going to struggle. Quit saying, I'm always sick. I've always been sick. Quit speaking death over yourself and others. Let your mouth reflect what you say you believe in your heart. Communication matters. The third point was repentance repentance and now i didn't go into this a lot that day because it was kind of off the cuff and god was changing up what we were preaching a little bit that day but the idea of repentance we have heard this preached a couple different ways the three main ways we've heard repentance preached we've heard repentance is putting off sin you know in sign language when you're wanting to say something's bad you go it's bad that's the way we've heard repentance put off bad stuff right That's one of the ways they used to say, repentance, put away sin, repent or you're going to hell. Come on, you guys have heard those messages. You can talk back. You've heard those messages before. The other way when we was like, well, that's not really all that repentance means is they started preaching this. Repentance means to change direction. Like you're walking this way and you turn around. That's repentance, right? You're walking this way and then you say, oh, God, and you repent and you go this way. We've heard repentance preached that way, right? The third way is they were like, well, no, repentance doesn't actually just mean to put off sin and it doesn't just mean to change direction. They said repentance means to change your mind, right? That's what they would say. That's the, the, more of the new teaching on repentance is they would say repentance means a change in your mind. And so you'd be like, you're over here and you're like, okay, I once thought this was black, but now I realize that it's not, it's actually white. That, they would say that's repentance. You changed your mind, Right? The problem is, is that all three of those are accurate, but all three of those fall short of what the word metanoia actually means. Metanoia doesn't just mean to change direction, which is the Greek word for repentance. It doesn't just mean to change direction. It doesn't just mean to change your mind. It doesn't just mean mean, mean to put off sin. What the word actually means, if you do a deep, thorough study on it, is it actually means a paradigm shift. It means, I was over here and I was thinking, okay, is this black or white? Is this black or white? Repentance wouldn't mean changing from thinking it's black to thinking it's white. Repentance would mean I leave this paradigm and I go all the way over here and now I think, okay, it wasn't just black or white. It was blue and green and purple and yellow and gray and red and orange. And It's a completely new way of thinking. It's almost like a birthing process. It's like a conversion of the mind. That's what repentance means. That's what it means. And so when we talked about repentance, we said, yes, it has the connotation of putting something off, but it's when God brings such light or illumination into your mind that he's showing you that there is something standing in the way from you in between you and pure joy. There is something that is in your way and you're going to have to go through the birthing process or the circumcision process to get to that state of being having the potential to access pure joy. And we shirk away or shy away from that because we know birthing is uncomfortable. I haven't ever given birth to a kid, but I've watched a couple and it does not look like a pleasant experience. It does not. I have seen faces and contortions and shades of skin color that I never thought were possible. It does not look like a pleasant experience. And people will say that it's one of the most painful experiences that people can go through. The birthing process. But let me tell you something. If you're pregnant with something and you don't go through the birthing process, something dies. And sometimes more than one thing dies. Something dies. If the birthing process is put off, something dies. If the birthing process happens, you don't just have life. Now you have abundant life you have life and then another little life or if there's twins two lives or if there's triplets three lives or quadruplets there's four lives or you know going beyond that good lord bless the mama but (laughs) but if you (laughs) but if you go through the birthing process you have life and abundant life but if you don't you have death and potentially excessive death and that's what repentance is. It's, it's you're brought to this place and you have the option to accept the paradigm shift and follow through. And it might produce a little bit of pain. It might produce some discomfort. But its end goal is to bring you into the joy of the Lord. 
And we don't like discomfort. We don't like discomfort. So we shy away from that for temporary satisfaction, fleeting satisfaction, or temporary comfort, or fleeting comfort, not realizing that not removing that is going to end in our death, in our spiritual death. God was willing to bring us through discomfort to bring us to where he wants us to be. And where he wants us to be is that place of joy. That's repentance. And then the next week, which is last week, we went into sanctification, which was your fourth point, sanctification. So you had identity, you had uh, communication, you had repentance, and then we did sanctification. And sanctification, a lot of people use that and repentance as synonyms. They, they say, well, God is sanctifying you, and what they mean is you're being separated from sin. And that is a portion of what sanctification means, but it's not all. I teased you guys last week, I don't know if anybody picked up on this, but I said that there are four components to sanctification in eight different phases. Four components to sanctification in eight different phases. And I'll run through those real quick. This isn't what we focused on last week, but I'll run through those real quick. The four components of sanctification is sin, Savior, service, and finally, Spirit. Sin, Savior, service, and spirit. And yes, I used an alliteration. I changed it around so that way it'd be easy to memorize. Sanctification means repentance. It means separating from sin. It means a paradigm shift. It means a changing of the mind. But sanctification also means a separation unto God, which is what we focused on last week, a cultivation of faith. And then sanctification also means being separated for the work of God. That's service. And then the final one is spirit. And sanctification means if you take it into the Old Testament and do a word study, you'll find sanctification paired with this word called consecration, which is going to be our word for the day, consecration. And what consecration means at its base root is the idea of the filling of the hand. That's actually, if you do a word study, it's the filling of the hand. It carries the connotation that God is calling you to a work, but he is going to give you the tools necessary to do that work. A great Puritan quote was God or the Holy Spirit only ever works with his own tools. The Holy Spirit only ever works with his own tools. And God is calling you to a work. He's separating you from sin. He's separating you to himself. He's pointing you for the work. And he's going to give you the tools necessary to do that work. And that's the filling of the hand, consecration. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. In our verse, if you're following along with that, it would be the word anointing. Anointing, that's what we're talking about today. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Is everybody good on that? We good with our recap? Let's go. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious word words which proceeded out of his mouth and they said is this not joseph's son all right i forgot to do something i told you i was going to give you the eight phases of sanctification i'll run through those real quick it's pre-regenerate it's positional it's phenomenal there's a point of sanctification there's the pneuma or the spirit baptism then you have practical then you have progressive and then you have permanent that's the eight phases of sanctification. Again, it's pre-regenerate, it's positional, it's phenomenal. You have the uh, pneuma baptism, then you have progressive, you have pr- or the point of sanctification, pneuma baptism, progressive, practical, and permanent. Amen, hallelujah. Yes, they all start with the letter P, that was a lot. I'll write it down and give it to you guys later so you don't have to, maybe we'll do a whole teaching on sanctification. And the reason that I put that is because really and truthfully, sanctification carries that covers the whole realm of the Christian life. Everything from before you were became a Christian, pre-regenerate sanctification is God drawing you to himself before you become a Christian. Positional sanctification is the moment of your conversion when you're justified and named righteous with God. The point of sanctification is that, mo- or the phenomenal sanctification is that thing that you begin to experience where you begin to do good things without even realizing that they're good things. 
That's God working in you His will and His pleasure before you even realize what's going on. I've known many people that get saved and become Christians and start doing good things and feeling like they need to put off certain things and no one has taught them that. They just know that's phenomenal. You're experiencing sanctification. You're not trying. You're not growing. You're just experiencing it. The point of sanctification is that crisis point where you begin to realize, okay, now the rubber meets the road. I am surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I am saying yes to His yes and everything I do in life is going to follow out of that. Then the pneuma uh, is baptism is obviously the spirit baptism. And then you have practical, that's you doing what the Word says. Then you have progressive, that's you growing in your sanctification. And then you have permanent, and that's when you get into glory and you have no sin. God has not just delivered you from the penalty of sin. He's not just delivered you from the power of sin. But finally, He has delivered you from the presence of sin. So that's the eight phases of sanctification. Hallelujah. Sorry, I kept getting tongue-tied there. It's hard when all the words start with the same letter. You start... Flipping them back and forth. You have to forgive me. So I just now put that into an alliteration for the ease of your memory. So be gracious. In a couple of weeks, I'll have it down. All right. And so today, obviously, the letter for the day is P. I just said it's P. So we're talking about the anointing. I'm going to give you five aspects of the anointing. And they're all going to start with the letter P. I'm doing this for your memory purposes so that you can remember this easy so listen for the letter p and that'll be when you write it down and i'm going to look if you're taking notes remember taking notes is the anglo-saxon amen so (laughs) you guys don't want to talk if you're taking notes i'll be like man they're shouting church right now hallelujah (laughs) wow (laughs) was everybody taking notes on that i couldn't hear you i gotta anyway that the penny will drop in a little bit. Everybody like, oh, Anglo-Saxon means Caucasian. Caucasian means white. I'm white. That's my amen. Hallelujah. Let's write that down. <laughs> oh, Lord. All right. The first P, the first P, the first point of the anointing is this, the presence of the anointing. Hallelujah. Man, if that doesn't get you excited in church, the presence of the anointing, I don't know if you're Pentecostal or not. If you're charismatic and Pentecostal and the word or the phrase, the presence of the anointing, doesn't kind of rustle up a little something in the pit of your gut, I question. We need to pray for your spirit baptism all over again. Okay? (laughs) Hallelujah. That's right. That's right. The presence of the anointing. Now, in this particular passage, you can see that when Jesus begins to read the passage from Isaiah when it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now, here's what I want you to picture. When most people picture the anointing being carried out, there's one of two things that they picture. The first, from a worldly perspective, is when someone is anointed, it's they're commanded or instructed or designated to do something. And you can do that by yelling across the room and saying, hey, you just got this job. I want you to go do this. You have just anointed them to do something, to carry out a task. You don't have to be anywhere near them. You can pick up a phone. You can send an email. You can shoot a text message. And that is an idea that the world would carry with the the aspect of anointing. There's an idea that the church carries with the aspect of anointing. And it's kind of like the Old Testament, Psalm 133. You know, behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the oil that is poured out upon the head and flows down to the beard, even Aaron's beard, then down to the ends of the garment. The oil being poured on the head. Right? I mean, is that what you guys think of? Somebody talked about an anointing. You think about the oil being poured on the head or the horn being broken and the oil being poured out. That's what they did for David, that's what they did for Saul, that's what they did for kings and prophets. They were anointed, and the oil was poured on the head. However, what I love, and the reason I love the term anointing, is because I was doing a word study one time, and I found that in the Old Testament, in the word anointing at its root, is this connotation of smearing. To rub it in, to smear. I just like the word smear. (laughs) To smear. And here's what I realized as I was preparing for this message and I was thinking about it. I realized if I anoint somebody for a position in the worldly understanding and I say, you know, you've got that job. I don't have to be near them. I don't even have to see them. I can call them or send an email or whatever. There's no, there doesn't have to be any connection. 
And if I pour the oil out according to the typical church understanding, there's a good probability that it doesn't get on me. You see that? Like I can pour the oil out or break the horn and pour the oil out and I'm still disconnected. I mean, we're closer than if I just made a phone call, but I can still be disconnected. (laughs) But here's the thing. God doesn't make a phone call. God doesn't just pour it out. God smears it in. And if I were to smear oil on somebody, there is zero chance, zero that it wouldn't get on me. See, pouring it out, it may not get on me. Making a phone call, it, may not, it isn't going to get on me. But if I smear it in, it's all over me and it's all over them and we walk away smelling the same. We walk away both smelling like the oil, both carrying the same fragrance. And when God is talking about anointing us with the oil of gladness, He's not talking about making a phone call and saying, hey, guess what? You now have the joy of the Lord. Go on, have a good time. He's not also not just going to dump it out and say, here you go, here's the oil. No, what he wants to do is he wants to come into our sphere, into our space, as our friend says, get all up in our peanut butter and jelly and smear the oil of gladness into our life. Smear joy into our life. He wants to cover it. And what he's actually doing is he's not bringing an abstract, disconnected, transcendent joy to us he's bringing a very close personal and imminent joy into our life and rubbing it in he's inviting us to get into the mixture of his joy that's why it says the joy of the lord is our strength not our joy in the lord is our strength no his joy becomes our strength because he invites us to participate in that joy with him Come on, that's, that's a lot better than y'all just gave credit for. He's inviting you into his joy so that you guys partake in that joy together. That you're not having joy over here and him joy over here. No, you're having a joint communal joy with the creator of all heavens and earth. That is a pretty awesome invitation. That's the presence of the anointing. The second word is the power of the anointing. The power of the anointing. Now, it starts right here and it says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. It's pretty easy to find that word, power of the Spirit. What we don't, didn't read or didn't have time to read in the preceding chapters is the fact that Jesus went down to the Jordan River and got baptized in the river Jordan. And when he came up, the heavens opened, the Holy Spirit descended in the bodily form of a dove and abode upon him and stayed. And then Jesus got up, went on his merry way into the wilderness, led by the Holy Spirit, fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and was tempted of the devil at the conclusion of his fast. And then after he went three rounds with Satan and knocked his two front teeth out at his weakest point, He then returns in the power of the Spirit. And you know, I want you to hear this. If you don't hear anything else today, I want you to hear this point right here. Obviously, if you don't hear anything in the 50 years, know your identity in Christ. I told you that. But if you don't hear anything else today from this message, I want you to get this. If you can't take anything else from the wilderness teaching of Jesus, of the wilderness temptation of Jesus, I want you to take this. Jesus did not go three rounds with Satan when he was at his best. He didn't. He fasted and became physically weak for 40 days, and then Satan came. He was not comfortable. He was out in the wilderness. So I'm just telling you, I'm not a camper. I don't really like camping. I have a really expensive bed that has like the inner cooling and the Tempur-Pedic stuff on top. I don't want to sleep on the ground in a sleeping bag when I can sleep in that. Okay? So I'm just, (laughs) hallelujah, if you can't praise God about a good bed, there's something wrong. But he didn't have food or water. He wasn't content. His stomach was rumbling, growling. He didn't have good sleep. He was in the flesh, and he was surrounded by wild animals and poisonous snakes and all this. So there probably wasn't a whole lot of just overflowing circumstantial happiness going on. I mean, there's a lot of things working against him in this moment. And then Satan comes to tempt him. And Jesus goes three rounds with Satan while he's at his worst 
not at his best, at his worst and lowest point, he goes three rounds with Satan and whoops Satan's hind end. That's because of the power of the Spirit. Because remember, he was baptized. The Spirit came. He had the power of the Spirit. Went to the wilderness, led by the Spirit, to go three rounds with Satan and kicked his two front teeth out. That is an example for you. That it, you don't have to be at your best. When you're at your weakest point, when you're at your lowest point, when you are broke as a joke, hungry, and you don't know how to make ends meet, and you are spiritually struggling, you still have enough of the Spirit of God in you to go three rounds with Satan and whoop his hind in. If you can't amen about that, there's something wrong. Jesus set an example and a precedent that at his worst point, he whooped Satan. At your worst point, through the power of the Spirit, you can whoop Satan. That's good stuff. That's what the power of the anointing brings. Is when you're smeared with God. And that sounds funny, doesn't it? You're smeared with God. You have God's Spirit in you. You have God's presence on you. It don't matter what your circumstances say. You can still go toe-to-toe with Satan and come out victorious. That's good. That's the power of the Spirit. That's the power of the anointing. The third P is purpose. The purpose of the anointing. But I don't want you to fill that blank in yet because we're going to come back to that. I just wanted to tease you. I could have left it at the fifth point, but I made it the third. I don't know why. I just did get over it. I'm the preacher. I can do what I want. Hallelujah. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, I just wanted to be... um, I won't say what I wanted to be. Anyway, the fourth point... The fourth point is the purity of the anointing. The purity of the anointing. And what I mean by this is I mean the simple fact that the anointing is not given partially and it is not given with mixture. God does not withhold from you any good thing. Romans 8.32 How shall he that spared not his own son also with him not freely give us all things? He does not withhold from you the anointing. Because if he gave us Christ, which is heaven's best, and he withheld anything else, he would be exalting it above Christ. And nothing is exalted above Christ. Christ has the preeminence. So everything that is below Christ has been given to us freely and richly for us to enjoy God gives us all things to richly enjoy freely given God gives you the anointing it's the father's good pleasure to give the kingdom it's the father's good pleasure to give the holy spirit to those that ask him it is God's desire for you to walk in what he wants you to walk in he doesn't give it with mixture meaning that he doesn't give you the half holy spirit and half junk No, it's 100% bona fide, certified Holy Spirit. You you get those, um, we do like, uh, you do like the Gatorades or like the the drinks and it says, or the fruit drinks and it says 100% juice and then you look and it's like juice and it's got like 15 other ingredients. You know what I'm talking about. Or like the thing a few years ago where the restaurants got in trouble because it only had to have 2.5% meat to be called 100% beef. I still don't understand that. Like, it only has to have 2% meat to be called 100% meat. Like, that's lying. <laughs> that's saying, <laughs> that's speaking what's not as though it was in a not a good way. Like, that's lying. That's prophesying, not prophesying. And, but that's not what God does. God gives you 100% authentic, verifiable anointing of the Holy Spirit. Now, here is something that I want you to say, because I've got three sections on this, the, uh, and the purity of the Holy Spirit. The first is that it's undiluted. He doesn't dilute it. He doesn't water it down. He doesn't give it partial. Jesus didn't partially die on the cross, so he's not a partial anointing. Jesus didn't partially ascend to the throne room, so it's not a partial gift of the Holy Spirit. It's full. He did it all. He finished the work and then gave us his mantle. The next sermon series we're going to do is called The Ascending Christian. And it's on the mantle of Jesus Christ. When Elijah ascended into heaven, he left his mantle for Elisha. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he left his mantle, which is the Holy Spirit, for the church. We are going to talk about the double portion of Christianity. That's going to be the next series that we do. But as we prepare for that, I want you to understand Jesus does not partially give his anointing. It is freely given to us. He has given 
us all things. All the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ Jesus. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Everything that we need is in Christ. And where is Christ? Christ is in us. The Spirit of Christ dwells in us. We have God. The fullness of the Godhead bodily dwell in Christ. The fullness of the Godhead bodily now dwells in us. We are the church, the temple of living God. It is given 100% fully. God doesn't withhold from you. Amen. That's the first point. It's undiluted. The second point is that there is a distinction between the person being anointed and the gift being anointed. And we've missed this in church. We've missed this in church. First John says that you have an unction from the Holy One. You have it. It's something that you have, that you possess. Paul tells the church at Rome, he says the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. God is not an Indian giver. When he gives it to you, he's not going to give it and then take it back. He gives it to you to keep. And when God gives you a gift, even if you begin to walk your life in sin, God doesn't come and steal the gift back. That's why we have preachers that will preach the gospel and you'll have these great ministries and then you see in their, they've been having an affair for 25 years or they've been you know, on the verge of dep- uh, like in clinical depression and then they commit suicide. That's how I was able to pastor when I had been in a state of depression because God gives us the gift and we have the gift and the gift is anointed, it's godly, but we're not where we're supposed to be but we still have the gift. And because that's where discernment comes in. Discernment is supposed to have the ability to look beyond the gift and look at the person. See, when Jesus says this, he says, God has anointed me. Not God has anointed my gift. God has anointed me. There is a distinction between walking in the anointing on your life and just having a gift that happens to be anointed. There is a big difference. God doesn't just want you to have good gifts. God doesn't want you to just have anointed gifts. He doesn't want you to just walk in an anointed calling. He wants you to have the fullness of anointing on your life. And just like we talked about the cultivation of faith last week, and there's things that you have to do to prepare for the reception of the Word, you have to make sure that the rocks and the weeds and all that stuff are taken out and that the ground is plowed up and ready to receive the word of God which carries the seed of faith in it just like you have to do that then you have to do maintenance work not that you're justified or you keep your justification by works but you do maintenance works to ensure that that produces a good harvest in your life the same is true of the anointing you have to do work in your life not to be saved or to keep your salvation not to be righteous or to keep your righteousness but to be able to walk in the full of the anointing you have to do some work you're righteous you're the righteousness of Christ and you have gifts that God has put in your life that God has given to you that he has freely distributed you have gifts but if you want to be anointed and not just have something that you can use it doesn't matter if you have all the weapons in the world if you're not skillful in using them God doesn't just want you to have the stuff. God wants you to have His presence smeared in your life. Does that make sense? There's a distinction between the gift being anointed and the person. And God is much more interested in the person than He is in the gift. So it's undiluted. And the person, the difference between the person and the gift, the distinction. The third point is that the purity of the anointing is that It is tethered to this word. The anointing flows through the word of God. We have problems in Pentecostalism and in charismatic churches because we'll have 50% word and then 50% chaos. The anointing and the Holy Spirit doesn't do anything that does not ground it and filtered through this word. He just doesn't. Everything the Holy Spirit does, the very purpose of the Holy Spirit is to make Jesus Christ known. The very purpose of the Holy Spirit is to guide us into all truth. It is, this is how God desires people to worship, to worship Him in spirit and truth. They are paired together. They are the two pillars of Solomon. The two pillars, spirit and truth. God wants us to know that His anointing funnels through the Word. That's pretty easy, right? The purity of the anointing. 
And the fifth point, I'm going to start speeding up because we're running out of time. The, the fifth point, because we still got to come back to the third. The fifth point is the pleasure of the anointing. The pleasure of the anointing. Now, I want you to understand that we define pleasure a little bit differently than the world does. Remember we said that you know, happiness, pleasure, joy, and gladness, the world will use those synonymously. Right? They'll say, well, this makes you happy. They'll say, oh, it's something pleasurable. Or, you know, oh, I'm happy. Oh, you're joyful. Like, they, they use them as synonyms, but they are not synonymous one with another. I told you, and I'll go back through it, happiness is external. It's an res- emotional response to something outside yourself. It has no internal bearing whatsoever. It's from the outside in. Pleasure is not about something that brings you happiness or joy. Pleasure is activities we choose to participate in to cultivate the things that make us happy. I'll say that again. Pleasure is activities that we willfully choose to engage in to cultivate the things that make us happy. That's why people that engage in sin are miserable sometimes, but they keep doing the same drug or keep engaging in the same sinful activity because they're trying to find and cultivate something that will bring them happiness and satisfaction, and they're doing it failing. And people say, why do you keep doing those, seeking those pleasures? Why do you keep doing those pleasurable activities? Because it's only for a season. It doesn't bring you happiness. You keep trying to cultivate, and no harvest is grown. But what you find happens is if you begin to willfully choose to participate in Christianity, you find that at first those things may not make, bring you happiness, but over time they begin to. Let me explain because I, I don't think that you guys got that from that. If I first become a Christian, praying out loud is awkward. It's awkward. That's not me being happy. It's awkward. I'm not aw- feeling awkward and embarrassed and shy and happy at the same time. But as I do it and I cultivate that pleasure, eventually it gets to the point where it actually starts bringing happiness and satisfaction. Studying the Word can sometimes be a drag. When you first start, before you start feeling the Spirit pulsating, it can be a drag. Don't believe me? Get saved, lead somebody to Christ, and lead them through First and Second Chronicles. It can be, it can be a drag. Especially if you try to read the word where God's not breathing in it at that moment. That's why I, don't t- I tell people, I want you to be in the word. I want you to do your Bible reading plans. I want you to study. But if it's, you're reading something and it's dry and it's like chewing gum and eating peanut butter at the same time, move to a different part of the Bible. Move to a different part of the Bible. Find where the pulse of God is at. Because that's what God wants you to read, not just rereading something for the sake of reading. I don't care if you read the Bible every year for the next 30 years. If you never read where God's heart is beating at in that word, you've missed it. You've missed it. What God wants to do is God wants to take you to that place to where you get that life. But it, sometimes it takes time. Sometimes reading the Word, you're like, oh, this is drud- I'm drudging through this. It's dull. And then eventually you cultivate, and the Spirit starts highlighting things and showing you things. And then what once was dull and hard and difficult has now become one of your favorite things to do. The same is true with preaching. The same is true with worshiping. It feels awkward to stand up on the front row and worship sometimes, especially when you first get started. But then once you realize I'm not worshiping, I don't even see them. I'm worshiping to an audience of one. And then you begin to fixate on him and see his smile and him shedding his light upon you. Then it takes the awkwardness out and it becomes the most enjoyable thing on the planet Earth. That's what I'm talking about. You can cultivate and try to choose to engage in activities in this world to cultivate what brings you happiness and it will never work. It'll be fleeting. It'll be momentary. You might have a moment of satisfaction and then you're miserable again. But pleasure, if you begin to do that in Christian things, you begin to cultivate and develop your spirit spiritual taste buds, you'll find ultimate satisfaction and complete happiness in that. That's what I mean by pleasure. And joy, joy is always tethered to a desire. Joy and desire are very, very close. Think about this. Christmas approaches. We just came out of December, out of January. Wow, we're getting further and further away. This year's flying by. But Christmas, I'll never forget, every year, my kids, before their birthday, before Christmas, they are joyful and anticipation of it and the moment comes and it's realized and the realization is never as good as the anticipation no matter how glorious it is because the joy in the anticipation 
is consuming. It produces a certain euphoria. Now, that's, that's fleeting joy. True joy is when you tether that anticipation to God and the desire for intimacy with Him, and then it has the opportunity to p- produce a continual euphoria because you're always desiring God. You're full and you continue to be hungry. You're full, you continue to desire. Your satisfaction's met. Now you're yearning for more, and it creates this beautiful paradox where you want more and you have more, but you still want more, yet you have more. And it's, it's beautiful, and that is the state of baptism of joy that we're talking about. It's a perpetual desire for for intimacy with God that is always met and ever increasing. Always met and ever increasing. And gladness is the description that we use to talk about somebody that abides in that state of per- joy, of perpetual joy. That's a state of being. Someone is in the position of gladness. That's why some translations will talk about being anointed with the oil of joy because it's about that desire, being anointed with that desire and then abiding in that place. Does that make sense? So when we talk about the pleasure of the anointing, we're talking about the anointing coming on you and smearing you with God's presence and satisfying yet creating a more urgent and more vehement desire. It's a continual circle. Amen? In this, there is a pitfall, though. There is a pitfall, and you don't have to write this as one of your points. But when you walk in the anointing, just like Jesus did, it said the fame of him went abroad. The noise of him went abroad. The news of him went abroad. Everyone glorified. Everyone was amazed. Everyone was flabbergasted. And what happens is if you begin to walk in the anointing, understand this, because I haven't said this and I need to. The anointing isn't just for preaching. The anointing isn't just for worship leading. The anointing isn't just for praying. It isn't just for reading your word. The anointing can be on your life to anoint you to do anything. God anointed people in the Old Testament to build a temple. He anointed somebody to be a goldsmith. He anointed somebody to create beautiful fabric. He anointed somebody to be a craftsman with wood and stone and other things. God can anoint you for any number of purposes. But when you begin to walk in that anointing, people will take notice because it's foreign from the spirit of the world. And you're walking in that people will take notice and celebrate you. And here's where we come in danger of enjoying or taking and cultivating a pleasure in their celebration rather than in the anointing itself. And what happens is people begin to be celebrated. Oh man, have you ever heard? That dude is a great preacher. Or that, that guy is the best worship leader or piano player I've ever heard. Or that woman, man, she can sing, she can preach. Have you ever heard her pray? Like people will begin to say those things and we fall in danger of enjoying their praise more than the anointing. And so we can either cultivate a pleasure in the anointing and in the presence of God, or we can desire the praise of men and begin to cultivate that. And that's why Paul gives us that warning in Galatians. If I should still seek to please men, I should not be a servant of Christ. Because service, eye-pleasing, men's service, people-pleasing, is an enemy of walking in the anointing. So that's the pleasure of the anointing. Now let's circle back real quick to point number three. Am I still with you guys or are you guys ready to go home? Ready to go lunch? I'm so, I pulled up my sleeves. Let's get to work. We're going to bust this out. All right. The purpose of the anointing. There's five purposes to the anointing. It's right there listed out. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those that are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Look, I want you to understand there is five spheres in your life. There are five spheres in your life. There's the spiritual, the mental, the physical, the social, and the financial. Five spheres in your life. Five areas. And you can flip that around and say you have five forms of capital that you can walk in. You can have financial capital. You can have relational capital. You can have physical capital. You can have mental capital. And you can have spiritual capital. There are five spheres of your life that you can operate in. And the purpose of the anointing is to hit every one of those spheres. The first one that he addresses is the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Now, I hate when people take and exalt the financial prosperity of the gospel as like it's the highest tier. It is the lowest form of capital, and it is the lowest sphere in your life. Financial capital fades, it ceases. However, I also equally hate when people say that there is no provision for finances in the gospel. That is a lie from the pit. Our finances were taken care of in the atonement as well. God does not want us broken, busted, and disgusted and not have the ability to walk and to accomplish the things that he wants us to accomplish. When I talk about financial prosperity, I'm talking about have the resources necessary to carry out the will of God in your life. 
God is not mad if you have money. God is mad when you exalt your money above Him and you make money your God. I don't care how rich you are. I just care about whether or not God takes the preeminence in your life. And here's the thing. When people want to say that the gospel does not deal with money, let me ask you this. Has anyone ever been poor before? I've been broke. (laughs) When we first got married and we have our first kid and God said faith needs to stay at home and you need to work, and I was working overtime, I was working six days a week, I was working 70 and 80 hours a week, and I was busting it, and we were still barely getting by. I've been poor. I've opened my cabinets and seen a jar of green beans that I didn't even know what the expiration date was on. I, I have been poor before. <laughs> been poor before. <laughs> it is not fun. But let me ask you this, for those of you that have been poor or walked in poverty before. What is good news to you? If you're poor and I tell you so-and-so just got elected President of the United States, is that good news to you in your poverty? You couldn't give two cans of green beans whether or not so-and-so became president or not. I'm serious. If so-and-so was just, just published a new book, is that good news? Praise God for them. Hallelujah. How am I going to pay for dinner? How am I going to make that rent? Like, I, I'm serious. How am I going to make the mortgage payment? Then publishing a new book doesn't do one thing for me. You see what I'm saying? Oh, man, they preached an awesome message. I'm glad they did. I hope it changed lives. Now, how in the world am I going to make ends meet? What's good news to you when you're poor? I'm going to tell you, somebody walked on my, knocked on my door with groceries and a check. That's good news. That's good news to me. And we forget, because we use the word gospel, we forget the word gospel literally just means good news. I love the NIV translation, to proclaim good news to the poor. If you're poor, good news means a blessing. It means provision. It means somebody coming and paying you your way. That's what good news is. And it's the very first thing on the list. It's almost like Isaiah, when the Spirit of the Lord anointed Isaiah to write that and Jesus to read it, it's almost like he's like, people are going to give so much slack about money, we're just going to deal with that first. It may be the weakest point in the lowest sphere of your life, but we're going to deal with that first. The gospel does deal with finances quite regularly. God wants you to prosper, meaning he wants you to be blessed and to have the resources necessary to carry out his will and plan for your life. He does not want you to starve. You ain't no good to him if you're starving. He does not want you to not be able to pay your bills. How does that set a good precedent for those around you? He wants you to have the resources and the tools necessary to carry out his purpose and his plan and his will for your life. It's right there. Good news to the poor. It's in the gospel. The second thing that he says is, he sent me to heal the brokenhearted. This is the realm of the mind or the soul. Brokenhearted is an emotional thing. People dealing and struggling with their emotions and they can't get out of depression and they can't get out of anger and they can't get out of resentment and they can't get out of bitterness and they can't get out of unforgiveness and they can't get out of hate and they can't get out of these things or they're broken and they're in mourning and they lost someone and they can't recover and their heart can't be healed and every time they see something or hear something it just brings them and shatters them into pieces. God has sent His servant in the anointing to heal the brokenhearted. There is an emotional healing paid for in the atonement. Hallelujah, I could go on on that one, but for the sake of time, we'll continue on. To proclaim liberty to the captives. This is talking about spiritual captivity. He that descended is the same also that ascended far above all things. And he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Jesus Christ led those that were in captivity out of captivity and into a new form of intimate captivity with him. But that's a willful and a voluntary captivity. Jesus has paid the penalty so that we are no longer under the dominion of Satan. We're no longer under the dominion of this world. We're no longer under the dominion of flesh. We're no longer subject to the penalty and the prison of hell we are delivered from the power and the penalty of sin jesus has led captivity captive he has set us at liberty that's spiritual the next is recovery of sight to the blind this is talking about your physical body healing is paid for in the atonement we have any numbers of scriptures we can quote isaiah 53 when it says that he was bruised for our transgressions he was pierced for our iniquities the chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we were healed or we can take peter's recollection of that when he says with his stripes we are healed we were healed 2000 years ago and we are healed currently we can take any number of scriptures you know psalms you know there was not one sick or feeble among their tribe there is plenty of scripture that we can walk in to show that healing is in the atonement god wants you to be healed The next thing is set at liberty those who are oppressed. Oppression is one group of people putting down or beating up or 
pushing down on another group of people. It literally means pressing down. One group of people pressing down another. This is talking about your social relationships. Relationships can be healed through the anointing. Now I want you to understand something, and this is something that we've walked through many, many times over. Just because God wants to heal a relationship and wants to bring reconciliation does not mean that He wants you to be best friends and go get a cup of coffee every Tuesday. Sometimes it's just dealing with the unforgiveness on both sides and dealing with the resentment and the bitterness on both sides, bringing complete healing, and then to keep you separate. That's why Paul says, as much as possible, dwell at peace with all men. If it's no longer possible to dwell in peace, separate yourself, love them, bless them, pray for them, thank God for them, but thank God that they're over there. (laughs) I mean, I'm serious. I love you, I bless you, I forgive you, I'm not mad at you, I'm not angry at you, I don't want you to suffer, I don't want bad for you, but I want you to be over there. I want you to work for the kingdom over there. I'll work for the kingdom over here. And when we get to heaven and the presence of sin is gone, then we'll be able to live in peace. Praise God. Right now, we can't do that. Your junk rubs my junk. Iron sharpens iron. Well, junk sharpens junk too. (laughs) I'm just saying, there are people that bring out the worst in you. And they don't sharpen your spirit, they sharpen your flesh. Just like spirit feeds the spirit, flesh feeds the flesh too. You know, that's what Paul talks about in Galatians. He says, whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Those that sow to the flesh shall of the flesh reap destruction. Those that sow to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. There are some people, every time you get around them, they just sow your flesh. Sow to your flesh. And you, no matter how spiritual you are, you ain't perfect yet, you sow to their flesh too. And then you got flesh and flesh, and there ain't no spirit in it. It's better for them to serve God over there and you to serve God over here. And a lot of people won't preach that. That's not forgiveness. The junk it isn't. It is forgiveness. It's forgiveness and then it's wisdom. Listen, you walk up with a butcher knife and stab me in the back 23 times and I survive. I can forgive you, but guess what I ain't going to do? I ain't going to give you a knife and turn my back on you again. I don't care you've been saved for 20 years. I ain't going to give you a knife and turn my back on you again. It ain't going to happen. I forgive you. I love you. I prefer not to be in the same room as you. Hallelujah. Let's, let's get that. God wants to heal your social relationships, but it doesn't have to be this namby-pamby, we all just have to hug and kiss and throw daisies in the air forgiveness. No, it's forgiveness, it's reconciliation. I always go back to this. When the children of Israel entered the promised land, how many tribes were there? Twelve. How many tribes went into the promised land? Nine and a half. Nine and a half. Because Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh said they wanted to stay on the west side of the River Jordan. But guess what they did? They went across the Jordan, fought all the battles, and then went back to take their inheritance. There are people in your life, three categories of people. There are seasonal soldiers, there are permanent dwellers, and there are evil infiltrators. And I preached a whole message on this out of Joshua 7. There are Seasonal soldiers, permanent dwellers, and evil infiltrators. Seasonal soldiers are people that are good, that are godly, that are great, and God puts them in your life for a season. But when that season is over, it's time for them to go into their inheritance and what God's called them to do, and you to go into your inheritance and what God's called you to do. Then there are permanent dwellers. That's the people that God says, no, I want you guys to build a covenant together and do a work in the Lord and in the earth together. Then there are evil infiltrators, and they're the people that come in looking like seasonal soldiers, and then their only thing is to spy out the liberty you have in the Lord so that they may bring you once again into bondage. And that may not be their actual intention, but that's what Satan intends behind them. When Paul talks about the thorn in the flesh, he's talking about other people. People say this all the time, the Old Testament. He talks about letting those in the promised land stay that were supposed to be driven out. They shall be thorns to your flesh. The New Testament highlights on that and says Paul had a thorn in his flesh. It's talking about people. It's talking about people, Satan using people to buffet you every chance they get. That is the thorn in the flesh. And if you let evil infiltrators into your life or let seasonal soldiers stay beyond the time that they are supposed to stay, they become thorns in your flesh and you never have a moment's peace. But it's about time that we start acknowledging, I love you, bless you, I thank you, I give God glory for you, but I want you over there and I want to be over here. Hallelujah. We can say amen to that. It's okay. Listen, everybody has EGRs, extra grace required people. 
I just want them over there and I want to be over here and I want to love Jesus together with them. Worship if we have to, shake it, worship together if we have to, shake your hand and say, thank God I won't see you again for another couple years. I watched the episode of Downton Abbey. Y'all can judge me if you want. But there's an episode of Downton Abbey. My favorite character is Violet, the old lady. If you've never watched the show. Eh. But anyway, Violet, the old lady, she's my favorite character. And there's a guy, he's getting ready to leave, and his name is Richard, and he's been a jerk the whole show, and he looks at her and he says, well, I guess we won't be seeing much more of each other. And you know what Violet does? She looks at him and she says, do you promise? <laughs> it's like, that's what I think about certain people. Do you promise? Do you promise? <laughs> Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So <laughs> that's, that's the next purpose, is God wants to heal your relationships. He wants to bring, the anointing wants to bring deliverance. Healing, reconciliation, but not necessarily proximity. All right. And the final thing, the final thing, I've went through all five. I've, I've hit financial. I've hit, um, boy, what's the order in this? Because it's out of order. I've hit financial. I've hit the mental and the emotional. I've hit the spiritual. I've hit the healing in the body. And I've hit the social realm. Spiritually, mentally, physically, socially, and financially, all five areas are covered by the anointing. And the purpose of the anointing is to deal with those things in your life, and so then you can deal with those things in the lives of other people. That's the purpose of the anointing. And now I want to end with this. The New King James translates the last verse to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. It translates it, verse 19, I think, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. But the better translation is this, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And when he's talking about year, he's not just talking about a year in time, as in 365 days. It's talking about a dispensation of time. It's talking about the dispensation of the gospel, the dispensation of grace. That it's the time of God's favor. That God's not mad at you. God doesn't want to beat you down and tear you up and shred you out. God is not angry at you. God wants to show you His favor, invite you into an intimate relationship with Him, and see the anointing meet every single area of your life. That's what we're in, the time or the year of God's favor. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the word this morning. I thank you for the power, for the pleasure, for the purpose, for the purity, for the presence of the anointing. Lord, how I thank you so much for the presence of the anointing. Lord, that you don't choose to remain a transcendent God altogether disconnected from us, but you choose to become so intimate, so close. Lord, you want to be all up in our business. God, you want relationship and intimacy and close proximity with us. I thank you for that, God. And I I'm praying that if any one of those areas, spiritually, mentally, physically, socially, financially, if anyone in this building is struggling in any one of those areas, Lord, I pray that you craft not just this message, but the work of your spirit. I pray that you specifically craft it to meet that need this morning. Lord, I pray over this church and say that they are a blessed church, that they are a blessed and highly favored church, that they have all that they need and that there is not one sick or feeble among our tribe at Faith Memorial. In Jesus' name, amen.